0: Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show. Celebrity interviews, amazing real-life stories, politics and investigations. An eclectic mix, I'm sure you'll agree. But always, I hope the common thread is that these podcasts are interesting to listen to. That's the aim anyway. This time I want to talk about mental health and resilience. I came across Linda Aitchison's story on LinkedIn and Linda uses the motto, get knocked down seven times, Get Up 8. When you hear her life story, I think you'll understand why. Linda, welcome along. Great to have you with us. Thank you so much. So, Linda, tell me a little bit about yourself then and your marriage, which I guess is where this story starts.
1: Some years ago, I met a man that was love at first sight, we used to say, and we were together 16 years. Got two beautiful twin daughters who are now 21 years old. And nine years ago now, we lost him. But before we lost him, not long before he died, we got married. So, yeah, it was quite, quite a story and quite a memory. And what was his name, Linda? So I'm talking about my lovely husband, Neil. Tell me what happened to him. Neil was diagnosed with skin cancer, maybe 15 years ago now, but it was just a tiny mole on his back and it was all very straightforward. We didn't give it a second thought, really. It was just removed and that was it. Like a lot of people, you know, nothing at all serious. And then 10 years later, he started to um, have some worrying symptoms that he didn't actually tell me about. And we ended up back in the NHS system with a scary sort of catalogue of hospital appointments, the culmination of which was that by November 2011, he was actually paralysed by skin cancer. And we were told that he may just have three weeks to live. At that time, we weren't married. And they told us independently of each other, what was actually happening. And I remember at, at that very instant, I came out of the consultation room with a shock and I just literally collapsed in the hospital corridor. I was very lucky that my good friend, Carol, was there to pick me up. But what we both did, as soon as we were given this most devastating news, which felt like a, an out-of-body experience, really, What we both said, separate to each other, was we want to get married. Unfortunately, they told us that we weren't able to plan a wedding because they said that Neil may never actually be allowed out of bed, that he would die too quickly for us to plan a wedding in anywhere other than over the hospital bed or in a hospice, which again was another huge shock, hugely devastating Our girls were 13 at that time, so I had to carry on my shoulders all the weight of telling them what was happening to their dad. But what happened was he was able, by some miracle, to have physio through the wonderful people at Macmillan Cancer. They came and worked with him every single day, and we did actually have, thanks to Carol and lots of other people who rallied round us, we actually had um, a church wedding and the memory of him walking down the aisle is quite something. There wasn't a dry eye in the, in the church.
0: So there was some incredible support for you, but Neil had also shown great courage in fighting back. He knew that he was going to die, but at least managed that day for you and for both of you of walking down the aisle.
1: That's it. That was totally his focus. He wanted to be married. He wanted he wanted to be there for for me and for our girls. And the thing was, we didn't know after that wedding reception how long he would have, whether it was going to be a matter of weeks or months. And I remember we had a wedding rehearsal between Christmas and New Year. This was in 2011 going into 2012. And even at the wedding rehearsal, he couldn't walk. He was walking with a walking frame. He couldn't get up and down steps in the hotel where we were going to have the reception. And I can remember being quite, well, I was panicking. I was worried that, you know, our grand plan to actually do this wasn't going to come off. But I didn't really account for his amazing determination. Yeah.
0: Why was it so important for you to get married given that you'd obviously lived together for a number of years you had twins who then were 13 was it an emotional thing was it if i'm i'm being nosy was it a financial thing
1: well it was a hugely emotional thing we had said some years earlier that um we would like to get married and it was me really that had held it up i didn't want to be the center of attention I was carrying a lot of extra weight at that time and I didn't I didn't want to do the big wedding thing and if I'm honest it was pure vanity on my part that I didn't I didn't want to be a bigger if you can put it that way I didn't want to be a bigger bride so we just sort of pushed it under the carpet but I it's a complete mystery to me why we both said at the same time separate to each other as soon as that news came through that he wasn't going to make it somewhere from in deep inside, as we both said, we'd like to get married. And I think it was just that thing of commitment. Neil was a hugely sensible man. He used to worry about finances and all those sorts of things. And in hindsight, of course, there was that element of him knowing that a widow who had been married to her partner is eligible for benefits and so on. But that absolutely wasn't in, that wasn't in our minds. The overriding factor was just that thing of commitment, which surprised me, you know, we'd never felt that we needed a piece of paper or anything like that. But just right in that moment, there was no question we wanted to get married. And when did you get married? So we got married on January the 2nd, 2012, and it was my friend, Carol, who was also my business partner. She pulled out all the stops and she got all of our friends together and just organised everything, flowers, cake, and her lovely sister, Katie, helped us. And she just took everything. She didn't want us to have to worry or stress or anything about any of the arrangements. And She did it in like three weeks from, you know, when they said, it's okay, you can plan a wedding. They were still saying that perhaps we should consider doing it in a hospice, but both me and Neil felt that that wasn't going to be the right thing to do.
0: So, you got married in a church?
1: Yeah, we got married in a beautiful church in Great Worley.
0: Great Worley in the, the beautiful Staffordshire countryside near Cannock, yeah.
1: Absolutely, yes. Yeah.
0: How long did Neil have left as it turned out?
1: We lost him exactly six months after diagnosis. And that would have been four months, just coming up to just over four months after our wedding. We got married knowing that we would have the results of tests the following day. The very next day after our wedding reception, we were going to hospital to um, pick up results. We'd been warned that chemotherapy was only ever going to be to keep him comfortable. And we were warned that it would only help in any way one in 16 people. Neil was a young man. He was 43 and he was incre- he was fit and, and trim and sporty. And unfortunately, the reality of skin cancer melanoma is the younger and fitter you are, the more it ravages your system the quicker it can progress so we were told don't get your hopes up about this treatment what actually happened was the day after our wedding we went back for those test results and we cried tears of joy because they told us that Neil was the one in 16 uh, the palliative chemotherapy had helped it had had an effect on his cancer and at that moment we said that we would raise a glass on our girl's 18th birthday and that's what we were going to do unfortunately what then happened was the cancer which was already in Neil's spine which is why he needed what which is what was paralyzing him it was already in his spine and it was in different places as well but you know I haven't really thought about in years but there's a big there's a big difference when cancer goes to your brain and it went to his brain And it was just devastating to see the effects of that. And he died in hospital in May 2012.
0: So an absolutely horrendous experience. Just four months after you'd got married and you're having to pick up the pieces of your own life and make sure that your girls, who are still 13, are okay.
1: That's it, yeah. I was actually diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and there were two reasons for that, I think. The first was that having to actually witness the reality of a young man, a young man who doesn't want to go, who doesn't want to leave his family, who's mentally alert and fit, but whose body is in very agonising decline. And anyone who's who has a loved one that faces this sort of journey knows what that's like. But sadly, the other big factor in my own emotional health worries after that came from a series of errors at the hospital. And this was something that I raised at the time. I wrote six pages of complaints to the hospital. I got plenty of pages back in terms of an apology, saying that things would change and so on. The actual treatment that Neil had had throughout this at the specialist cancer ward at the hospital was incredible. The people were compassionate. They used to let me sleep in in a chair by his side so I could be there with him. They stood and clapped. It takes me back now when I see the coronavirus people leaving the hospital with all the nurses standing clapping as they go i can remember the first day neil walked very tentatively down a hospital corridor with his walking frame people the medical staff there stood and clapped they were amazing in that cancer ward unfortunately because of a lack of beds there in the last week of his life he was looked after in a general medical ward and I wrote about this at the time. My, I summed it up with the phrase, we just weren't shown a single word of kindness. They didn't know his name. He had his property stolen. He fell out of bed. They wouldn't give him a shower. All little things, not huge neglect by any stretch of the imagination. But I remember the week before he died, I took him. We went by ambulance to A&E. And we'd been referred by an on-call doctor, and he need he was dehydrated. And I can remember how sharply the nurse talked to me about asking him, asking her for a drink of water. And she said the doctor would have to decide when he would get a drink of water. And I said, when will he see a doctor? And this stressed nurse at the end of a tether, after working out whatever hours, just said to me, God knows. And I can remember at the time that cut like a knife that I just didn't feel we were being treated with the respect or whatever. And then um two porters were asked to take him somewhere on a on a trolley. I can't remember why or what for, but they were arguing in front of me about it wasn't their job to do this and it wasn't their job to do that. And as the week progressed he he went onto this ward and I wasn't a I wasn't allowed to stay with him. I was only allowed sort of limited, limited visiting hours, and that led to huge guilt on my part that I wasn't there with him in those final days as much as I could have been, and that was one of my reasons for complaints. And then another thing that was a huge trigger for me that kind colleagues that work had clubbed together and bought him a Kindle and his Kindle got stolen, and I can remember saying, or I can remember talking to a nurse about it and saying, goodness me, what are we going to do? His Kindle's been stolen. And she was laughing and saying, oh, I don't even know what a Kindle is and all of this stuff. And I was just, I was just sort of a rabbit caught in the headlights, thinking, my goodness, what's happening? You know, you're not... You're not dealing with someone who's going to get better, and we're going to leave. This man is dying. You know he's dying. We're here with him in his final days, and you're making jokes and laughing. You know they'd pull. I'd pull the um, curtains round his bed because he was in such a state. Bless him. And they'd come along, and they, in a very sort of jolly manner open the curtains again and i got into a bit of an argument and said what are you doing can we let him have some dignity please he was just on a general medical ward and he was being stared at and it was just vile i remember you know he fell out of bed he fell out of bed and there he was lying on the floor i mean because the cancer had gone to his brain he wasn't himself and because of that experience in the hospital and especially i think when they refused to give him a wash Uh, because they were changing shifts or whatever. Me and my daughter, my 13-year-old daughter, who knew her dad was going to die, had to go and give him a wash.
0: It's all right, Linda, just take your time. Just take your time.
1: So yeah, that was tough. Are
0: you okay? It's okay. Oh,
1: sorry. Sorry. Yeah, I'm absolutely fine. It's just, as I say, you know, that was tough.
0: Linda, out of this terrible, traumatic experience, you somehow managed to build a business with the help of your friend Carol, who you've referenced several times. So how important at that time in your life then was your best friend Carol? Carol was my
1: sister. We felt like we were sisters at work. (laughs) At work, she was good cop, I was bad cop. We built a business. We built a team of seven. Carol was recognised as the UK's most exceptional working mum because she'd been told she'd never walk and she'd never have children. And there we were, she'd got her two beautiful boys and we'd also got a successful business that was being recognised in Parliament for our, the way we treated our staff in terms of flexible working arrangements and so on. She set up a women's networking group in Staffordshire, many of whom, the members of whom are still friends today. She'd been born disabled, which was a term she absolutely hated. She'd had her leg uh, amputated as a child. She never, ever wasted a moment and she made me a better person just being around her because she was just so positive and lovely and bubbly and kind. And we used to joke and I would say, I'm going to sit in the office muttering and you go out. And that's, that's what we did. I was very sort of operational, getting my head down, doing the work, sharing stuff with the team. And Carol was an inspiration to us all. And what kind of business was it, Linda? Linda. So we started off as an editorial agency so i'd be selling features to national newspapers and magazines you know real life features for the women's weeklies and for the tabloids i did a lot of work about twins and triplets and all of that but we realized to build that we were also doing what i would i called commercial writing so we were doing media relations publicity newsletters marketing all of this stuff and we also were able back at that time to embrace social media i was writing for the broadsheets about social media which was fantastic and carol joined me in training people in social media and she was absolutely brilliant she joined me as someone who was supposed to help me with admin and just be a bit of a backup office staff And we used to joke that she chased me around the co-op to to get the job and all this nonsense. But actually, she developed in confidence so much and people warmed to her so much. You know, she was running the business as equally as me, if not more, because she was the one with the admin skills and the organizational skills. And we realized very quickly that companies – don't go out of business because they haven't got enough work. They go out of business because they don't organise themselves properly. And Carol was absolutely the backbone of that business with all of her wonderful skills. And what happened to Carol? Carol died in 2017. She'd never smoked a day in her life, but she was diagnosed with a lung cancer and she died six weeks after that diagnosis. She was the most dignified, brave person you could ever meet. She felt terrible. What really, really upset her was going back to that hospital where where we'd lost Neil. And she'd been with me in his final hours, holding his hand, as had Katie, her sister, and my good friend who I still work with. So that was a real mental block for all of us. And I felt guilty because... When somebody gets a diagnosis like that, lots of people are very, very positive and talk in these terms of battle and fighting and winning and saying stuff like cancers, pick the wrong person to mess with and all of this. And I felt really guilty to be around her to, for her to know. I was a reminder that things don't always go as you hope they do. What she did was she didn't want people to know how ill she was. So we kept it, we kept it quiet really from clients and so on. And then I think it was 24 hours before she died, she let people know. And I was getting people to send her, you know, a flood of love on Facebook to let her know how loved she was. Um, it's three years today since she died. It seems like yesterday.
0: So this is the third anniversary of the death of the person who was your rock in the years after you lost your husband to cancer. She too died of cancer. Given the trauma that you suffered with Neil's loss, how did you deal with Carol's loss?
1: Well, (laughs) she died actually six weeks after my father-in-law died. So I was... I was trying to help my mother-in-law the best I could, who was sort of coping with the immediate aftermath of becoming a widow. And I was coping with my girls losing their granddad when their first experience of loss had been their dad. That was all the wrong way round. Huge emotions stirred up by that, not only because of the loss of a beloved granddad, but also of all the reminders that went there. So Carol was ill at the same time as my father-in-law. And I can honestly tell you, I don't know. I didn't know what day it was. Um, I was fraught. I was angry. I was biting people's heads off. I I was still, for some reason, going into work. I was erratic. You know, we were losing clients. I was arguing with everybody. Yeah, It was, I don't really know how to describe it. And to be fair, I think the best way to say is it's just a complete blur, just a complete blur. I used to say that I got my wedding and Neil's funeral mixed up because it was in the same church. And when when Carol's family organised her funeral, bear in mind, sorry, I'd also been to my father-in-law's funeral just, I don't know, a month or whatever before, it was surreal, really. It was absolutely surreal. But I'll tell you what: the church, when after Carol had died, her funeral service was—it was packed. People just thought the absolute world of her because of her amazing humanity and kindness and positivity and all of those things.
0: Linda, it was three years ago today, as you've told us. Yet on your LinkedIn page, and this is one of the reasons I was keen to speak to you, you talk about being knocked down seven times and getting up eight. I think it would be totally understandable if somebody with your life experiences had gone under. Why haven't you? What have you done since?
1: Well, I fundamentally don't agree that that's right. I don't think it would be understandable that somebody would go under, and certainly not when they've got two young girls as you know, two young daughters who need the love and support of a mum. I mean, it got very, very difficult. We had bereavement counselling, which was hugely helpful because it allowed me to know that whatever I felt was okay. And do you know what a, t- a turning point for us was when myself with my daughters, Melissa and Emily, we went to South Africa and we helped children who had been orphaned, who'd lost both parents through AIDS. And that was a very emotional journey that showed us that I don't have a monopoly on pain and that these children, they woke up every every morning and looked through a window in a hut and saw both of their parents' graves. Now, I was living in a society that supports me in all sorts of ways. After, after Carol died, I was able to have a word with myself and know what what to know with complete certainty what Carol would want because what she'd always been able to do for me, she used to say to me, oh, just come in and faff. I know you're not up to it. Just come in and faff because I was in a lot of pain but when she went I I took that more as a, a spur to live life to the full, make a difference, be generous. Another thing that's helped me and I say with no no shame, no hesitation, helping other people has absolutely helped my heart. So what I've done is become a voluntary ambassador for a West Midlands charity which supports children who escape domestic violence. That's called the Buddy Bag Foundation and I help them by raising money and going along to events and stuff. I've become great friends with Susie from Smile for Joel, who I help sometimes with different things. Helping other people, it sounds such a cliche, but it it really does help because it's not all about me. I hit the floor, really. You know, I had post-traumatic stress. The other thing that I've done, I've lost eight eight stone, actually, through fitness, through better diets. I look like a different person. I'm not a different person, but I look like one. (laughs) Yeah. And
0: the Susie who you referenced there, Susie Evans, who I actually know personally, Susie lost three family members in a terrorist shooting on a beach in Souss in Tunisia.
1: She did. And she's a real, I feel like she's a real kindred spirit. I mean, you can never compare. You can never compare losses. Grief isn't a competition. But she's an amazing lady. And what I do is I help her now with different things to do with, you know, editorial stuff and... You know we've got some good stuff coming up and i love helping her
0: if somebody is listening to this linda because one of the reasons i know that you were keen to be interviewed for this podcast was to reach out to people who perhaps may have been through bereavement or double bereavement as you've experienced or just going through a very tough time with their mental health if somebody's listening to this and thinking well I am at that bottom that you were, what would you say to them?
1: I would say to them that please know that whatever you're feeling is okay. You should not beat yourself up for feeling so dreadful, so down, so upset, so devastated, being in so much pain. That pain is allowed and you shouldn't avoid it. I think too often now we are surrounded by these messages that tell us, you know, you've got to be positive, you've got to be positive, you've got to find the positive. People say stuff to you like, oh, he's in a better place or everything happens for a reason. I know 100% how angry that makes you feel when someone says they're in a better place. They're absolutely not, and I think you've just got to be kind to you and know it's okay not to be okay, but please do find help, you know. And this is important, I think. I'm busier now with work than I've ever been, and I'm loving it. I made a, I made a decision that I would do work that I found important that makes a difference, and all the rest of it. But over the years, I've had to take time to get back up. I've taken time. I've had my days. I've had weeks. I've had months where I've just retracted. I've just hidden away. You know, I've sat at home in front of homes under the hammer or whatever and done nothing. You've got to allow yourself to do that. People say you're brave if you overcome these things and you find the positive. That's not the brave thing. The brave thing is shutting your door and crying and forgive my language and feeling like shit and allowing yourself to feel like shit. You're allowed to feel like that. Stop listening to people who tell you that you should be finding a positive because you know what? Pain and illness and bereavement don't happen for a reason. It's not a life lesson. It's just life.
0: Really good to hear your story, Linda. Thank you so much for sharing it. If people want to follow you on social media or contact you through LinkedIn, where I saw you, what are your various social media handles?
1: Well, I'm on Twitter, which I have, just as Linda Aitchison, and I'm on Facebook as Linda Aitchison as well. And I've got a writing group on Facebook called Writing Wisdom for Small Businesses. But I'm just in the midst of launching a new company which will be called Nurture Media to help encourage people who deserve it, to tell to tell extraordinary stories of overcoming adversity and so on. And, and those social media handles, they're not ready yet. They're not there. I'm just in that sort of state of flux, if that's the right word.
0: You'd be the first perfect client for Nurture Media by the sound of it.
1: Well, yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, the eight stone weight loss story has gone down well, (laughs) as you can imagine, yeah.
0: Linda, great to speak to you and good luck in the future. Thank you so much for sharing your story.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks, Adrian. All right.
0: There you go that's Linda Aitchison and just to say if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast do feel free to reach out to me or to Linda or to any other organisation that might be able to help you there are plenty out there. If you want to drop me an email it's goldbergradio at gmail.com or you can follow me on twitter at Goldberg Radio. Thanks for listening.